Good morning, church. We're back in the Gospel of Matthew today. Open with me to Matthew chapter 14. Last week we finished up the 13th chapter of Matthew, Jesus' third discourse in the book. It was full of parables. It was known as the parable discourse. But the parables were all about the kingdom of heaven and the surpassing worth of entering into the kingdom. But we learned also that some would fail to see the kingdom of heaven for what it was, a treasure. Because Jesus took a trip back to his hometown of Nazareth to visit his family. And there he was rejected as he taught in the synagogue. This week, in chapter 14, Matthew brings us to a whole new place. Chapters 12 and 13 flowed into one another as a continuing narrative But now Matthew gives us a break in that narrative and introduces us to a new character. So stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. Again, Matthew 14, verses 1 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men beside women and children. Please be seated. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. We submit ourselves to it humbly. We pray that you would open it up for us in your spirit. We ask that through it you would mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Again, a brand new character. In Matthew chapter 14, we're introduced to Herod the Tetrarch. Now, at the beginning of the book... We were introduced to another Herod who sought to put Jesus to death. 
when he learned that a rival king had been born in Bethlehem. That was not this Herod. That was Herod the Great. This is Herod the Great's son, Antipas. Herod Antipas. It's confusing because almost everybody born to Herod the Great were named Herod. Even his great-granddaughter, as we learn in this text, is Herodias. But this here is Herod Antipas. He is called the Tetrarch here, which is a unique title in the Herodian dynasty. It meant ruler over a fourth, suggesting that Israel, where Herod was a king, was split into four different sections ruled by four different leaders. That would be a safe assumption, but an incorrect assumption. There were only three sections of Israel under Herodian rule, and when Herod the Great gave his kingdoms to his sons, uh, that was split only into three. At this time, the region of Judea, at this time when Jesus is speaking and teaching and living, the region of Judea, where Jerusalem is, was under direct Roman rule under a Roman prefect because Herod's son Archelaus was such a bad leader, he got exiled. But let's back up a pinch. Let me explain how Israel was ruled at the time in a little bit more detail. As we move forward in the Gospels and as you read other Gospels, this knowledge will be helpful. The Romans conquered Israel in 63 B.C., And it became a province and a client state of Rome, meaning that it was ruled by a king, but that king was kind of a puppet king. He had to do exactly what Rome told him to do. In 37 BC, the king that rose to power to rule Israel under Rome was Herod the Great. And he was brutal. His rise to power was something you'd see on like an A-class TV show. He did many things for the nation, and he was also known as Herod the Builder, but he was cruel and jealous. He was suspicious of everyone around him, and his three older sons he had killed. Not a good guy. When Herod the Great died, as I mentioned, he left his kingdom to his three other sons, not his only three sons, but three other sons, But he didn't give them the title king. They would be tetrarchs, which was like two full steps down from the Roman given title of king. Again, it means ruler over a fourth, but it also commonly meant ruler over some small portion. Archelaus, who we are briefly made aware of in Matthew chapter 2, who is the oldest of Herod's remaining sons, was given reign over. Judea and Samaria. That was his tetrarchy, although Rome upgraded him to the title of ethnarch. But he was a bad and cruel king, so he didn't last very long, and he was exiled in Judea, specifically the city of Jerusalem, a problem city for the the empire of Rome, was then ruled directly by Rome. Again, this is where Pontius Pilate comes in later on. Archelaus had been exiled. Herod Antipas, the next oldest, ruled over Galilee and Perea. This is the Herod of our story today. And then Herod the Great's next son, Philip the Tetrarch, reigned over the eastern portions of Israel, many different 
places, about five or six different places, all in the east. Tetrarch was not a good title. It wasn't something that they wanted. Each one craved the title of king. Archelaus, the oldest, even traveled to Rome to talk to Caesar about it. But he was not given the title king, nor are any of the other Herods in the rest of the stories. Rome does not give the title to king to any, anyone else in the Herodian dynasty. And you'll find that this dynasty, under Roman rule, is messy and confusing. I'm sure even as I'm speaking, you are confused by what's going on here. Not only did they all share names, they intermarried and caused quite a bit of controversy with the Jewish people over their marriage practices. One of the biggest controversies around Herod as the king was that he wasn't actually Jewish. He was Idomenian, meaning he descended from the Edomites, from Esau. So he wasn't Jewish. He tried his best to seem Jewish, and so did his sons to varying degrees of success, Antipas being the worst one at it. The story focuses today on one of these marriage controversies. We see in verse 2 that Herod's, Herod's conscience is burning within him. When he hears of this Jesus, he says, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. You'll remember from what we've learned about John the Baptist in the Gospel of Matthew that he isn't a miracle worker. He hasn't done anything miraculous. He was a preacher and a leader and famously baptized in the wilderness, but that was it. Herod Antipas seems to think that John, being raised from the dead, has gained new supernatural powers. So this is simple superstition, pagan superstition. And superstition and a bad conscience are dangerous bedfellows. Herod should have been aware that John's ministry overlapped significantly with Jesus' ministry. They were working at the same time, and Herod even had John locked up in his prison for at least a year while Jesus was going about his region of Galilee, healing people and teaching. They could not be the same person, but Herod, as we see, is not a reasonable man. At this point, Matthew takes us into the past on a recent history flashback in chapter 14 to tell us about the death of John the Baptist at the hands of Herod Antipas. So we see first an unrighteous king's deadly feast. Verses 3 and 4 tell us why John was in prison in the first place. Matthew says, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod Antipas captures John and puts him in prison because he doesn't like what he's saying. When he hears this prominent Jewish leader criticizing his recent adulterous relationship with his half-brother's wife, Herod has John thrown in prison. Verse 4 is a bit more emphatic than what the ESV translate, John had been saying, meaning he kept on saying over and over, it is not lawful for you to have her. This has been a theme in John's ministry, so much so it gets him imprisoned. 
John's message got on Herod's nerves, and Herod does not believe in free speech. As the Gospel of Mark tells us, it got on his new wife's nerves even more. Herodias. And again, John was silenced. Here was the issue. Herod Antipas was already married, and Herodias was already married. And according to some Jewish leaders at the time, Herod would have been allowed to divorce his wife for almost any reason, but Herodias was not allowed to divorce her husband. Their relationship, according to the law of Moses, was both adulterous and incestuous. Leviticus 18.16 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Again, a couple chapters later, Leviticus 20.21, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Again, you may have picked that up from her name. She married one of Herod's sons, her uncle, Herod Philip, which is not the same Philip I've already mentioned. Again, Herod was not very good at naming his kids. That means Herodias married her uncle, but she fell in love with her other uncle, Herod Antipas, and in their depraved relationship, they broke the law of God over and over and over again. The Herodians, hopefully you're picking up, the Herodians are not moral leaders. The Herodians believed that they were above the law of God, that God's revealed will for all people did not apply to them. They claimed to be the rightful Jewish kings of the land, but they always failed in regard to the covenant commandments. And we should not be surprised by this. Should we? This should not surprise us because tyrants, dictators, absolute monarchs, and despots have always strayed in the excessive sins of overripened pride. Always. They believe they are allowed to do whatever they'd like to do because they have unchecked power over their domains. It's no coincidence that rulers throughout time with unchecked power claim to be gods. Antipas has given into that lie that he is above the law of God, that nobody can hold him accountable. And John the Baptist has been courageously speaking truth to power at great personal cost. Verse 5 tells us that Herod wanted to have him put to death. Herod's biggest worry, though, wasn't for his own personal safety. He didn't think that people would try to kill him or revolt. So don't misunderstand. He says, Matthew tells us, he, he feared the people because they thought he was a prophet. Antipas's worry was that the people would complain to Rome. That's exactly what happened to his older brother, Archelaus. Again, Archelaus was a horrible and cruel leader, and the people of Israel complained to Rome and got him kicked out. Antipas was worried that the same thing would happen to him. He didn't want to lose his power, which is almost always the case in ungodly leaders. So he keeps John in prison. But then his birthday comes, which is another clue 
to Matthew's audience that Herod isn't someone trying to live a righteous Jewish life. Birthdays were not a social custom of the Jews. It was a Greek tradition. And these two cultures butted heads all the time. Hellenization and Judaism. Greeks celebrated birthdays. But even in Greek culture, birthdays were celebrated for long dead kings and rulers, not for common people. It was a prideful assertion of any ruler in Greece to celebrate their own birthday. But here we find Antipas having a birthday party. These parties would have been full of debauchery, drunken affairs, full of sexual immorality. Think of the worst version of some 1980s bachelor party movie. Male dominated with inhibitions completely removed. And we learn that at this debaucherous party, Herodias sent out her daughter to dance for the men. We actually know the name of Herodias' daughter. Her name is Salome. She's probably 13. We aren't told what kind of dance she performs. It could have been some dignified, classical, culturally significant dance. But that's not really the kind of party Herod is throwing. So it's probably not the kind of dance you'd want your 13-year-old daughter to do in front of a lot of drunken men. But Salome impresses Herod, and in his drunken state, he promises to give her whatever she might ask. In Mark, we actually learn that he's willing to give her up to half of his kingdom. So being a young girl who doesn't know what to do with this opportunity, she runs to mom. And Herodias knows exactly what she wants to ask for. Verse 8 says, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter is a gruesome request for a birthday party. One would think that it would ruin the whole affair. But if you think that, then you haven't begun to grasp the abject immorality of Antipas and his partying. If a good old beheading wouldn't fit in, nothing would. She asks for it immediately delivered on a platter. Herodias doesn't want Antipas to vacillate or waste time. She doesn't want him to be able to say, I'll do it later. She wants it on a platter now. Interestingly, Matthew records Herod's emotional response. And the king was sorry. Translations vary on how to render that word sorry in the ESV. Some say he was grieved or that he had regretted what he said. In any case, Herod is not happy, which may seem odd to you as we've read through this. It seems disjunctive with what Matthew has already said about Herod in verse 5. He wanted to put John to death. He was seeking a reason too. He just didn't do it because the people thought he was a prophet. So why is he sorry now? Matthew paints Antipas to be the primary evildoer in this story. And certainly he is. Again, Matthew even pokes fun at Antipas by calling him king here. He's not a king, very explicitly not a king. But Antipas's feelings about John were nuanced. The Gospel of Mark points that out. Mark 6 
tells the same story of the death of John the Baptist, but, but Mark's version, as it usually is the case, is much longer than Matthew's. In Mark 6, we read in verses 19 and 20, Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death. Notice the bad guy here is Herodias. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When Herod heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herodias, in Mark's version, is the power behind John's death. Herod had mixed feelings. And Matthew's way of communicating these mixed feelings is to do so narratively. So we have to pay attention to how Matthew writes. Herod wants John dead. He doesn't like what he's saying, but when it comes down to it, he's sorry. There is something in Herod that knows this isn't the right thing to do. He has a sense of right and wrong, which should be enough to influence him to actually do justice. In Romans 2, Paul talks about how the conscience bears witness to the law of God. There is a moral standard set by God within creation that we are created to be sensitive to. But, as Paul says in Romans 1.18, we suppress the truth of God in our unrighteousness. You can see this happening in the story of Herod's birthday party. He knows he shouldn't have John killed. He regrets it. He's sorry. But he's more worried about saving face than doing justice and ruling righteously. Matthew tells us in verse 9, And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given, it being the head of John the Baptist. Verse 10, He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. Herod, again, is more concerned about embarrassing himself than ruling rightly and doing justice, which is a lesson for us and a moment to stop and examine our hearts. Do we fear God and doing what he requires more than the fear of the judgment of men? The head, in any case, despite Herod's failings, is delivered on a platter to Salome, and Salome gives it to her mother. Verse 12 tells us that the disciples of John were allowed to take John's body and bury it, which is a little bit surprising. Maybe gives us another window into Herod's conflicted heart. John is allowed to have a proper Jewish burial. Herod is not a good guy. Herod is a sinner. And one of the worst sinners in the Gospel of Matthew. He is more concerned about himself than anything else. If there is an example of an unrighteous king to juxtapose against Jesus in the Gospel of, in the Gospel of Matthew, it is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas doesn't do what's right even though he knows he should. And this is the end of John's story. The end of John's story in the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen him work over and over. We've heard from him time and again. 
His influence throughout Jesus' ministry has been massive. But now it's done. John the Baptist, it turns out, is not the Messiah. He is buried and he stays there. But praise the Lord, we will see him in the resurrection and enjoy eternity in fellowship with John, this courageous man who preached the coming kingdom even to his death. It is not the end of John the Baptist forever, even if it is the end of his earthly life. After John is buried, John's disciples go and tell Jesus. Why they felt the need to tell Jesus and report to him is unclear. Perhaps they understood that Jesus was the heir to John's ministry and the man who would see it to its fullest expression, which is certainly true. Maybe they just knew that Jesus was his cousin and would like to know. In any case, Jesus receives the news, and it's important to know that the rest of chapter 14 has the death of John the Baptist in the background. So as we read these stories, these very familiar stories, don't forget that Jesus is mourning the loss of his cousin. Chapter 14 contains some of the greatest miracles of Jesus, and they're all performed in the wake of the death of one of his family members. The only family member that we have been introduced to who is actively doing the work of the kingdom. Jesus and John's connection were deeper than a family bond. John was appointed servant of God, the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He was the foretold Elijah who would come. We heard that from the lips of Jesus himself. This was Jesus's ministry partner. Even though the gospel writers don't record them spending much time together, their bond would have been foundationally spiritual and strong in the Lord. Imagine finding out that a close ministry partner who has been in prison for over a year now has been beheaded by a drunken ruler at his sinful birthday party as a sideshow. How would you feel? Would you feel desolate? I think that's how Jesus felt when he hears the news. That's the word that Matthew goes to to describe narratively Jesus' emotional state. Verses 1 through 12 showed us an unrighteous king's deadly feast, but verses 13 through 21 show us, second, a compassionate king's life-giving feast. Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And Matthew doesn't have to come right out and say that Jesus was sad to hear this news. We can, we can read it in Jesus' actions. He demonstrates Jesus' feelings in the narrative. Jesus is grieved to hear the news about John, and his first impulse is to get away, to spend time with the Lord. And to spend time with his disciples, to be clear, his disciples are with him here. The boats that were common on the Sea of Galilee couldn't be driven by one man. And we find out later that his disciples are with him encountering the crowds. But his disciples need a retreat too. After their first ministry journey, they've been nonstop going and Jesus wants to provide some solitude. But Matthew continues, 
When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from their towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Well, that's just great, isn't it? Jesus wants some time alone and some rest, but the crowds follow Jesus to his destination, and they are there when he arrives. Jesus can't get a break. Now think about how you would react in this situation. You've just found out that your friend, partner in ministry, has died after a long imprisonment. You're tired. You want to spend some quality time with your friends and with the Lord. But here is this great big crowd that's demanding your attention. How would you react? I know how I would react. Oh, not now. Come back later. Just give me a moment. I need some time to myself, please, and then I'll help you. I'm worn out. I'm sad. Give me a moment. I know that's how I would react because that's how I often react to my four-year-old and to my wife. I'm worn out. I'm tired. I need some time. And sure, we all need rest. We all need Sabbath. We need to recover and enjoy a bubble bath or our favorite TV show every once in a while. But notice how Jesus responds in this moment. How does he respond in this moment in his overwhelming grief and loss and desolation? When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. That's our Lord, isn't it? He is the compassionate king who sets aside his own wants and desires to care for the poor and the needy. We're about to find out that this crowd numbered into the thousands. And Matthew tells us plainly that he healed their sick. Period. Mark tells us that he also taught them many things. Now, Jesus is no stoic. He's, he's not battling his feelings and pushing them down. He's not, he's not stuffing himself away. Jesus in, is in the midst of grief. He's not suppressing feelings. He's not ignoring them. He's rightly prioritizing his flock. In verse 22, after this whole story and what we'll cover next week, after the crowds are sent away, Jesus gets away by himself. He gets rest with the Lord. He gets time to process his grief. But may the Lord change my heart to better reflect my king's response when he was tired and worn out. And may I respond in compassion for those who are needy despite my emotional lows. And may the fruit of the Spirit abound in my heart to change my attitude to joy and mercy when I am needed. May that be true of all of us. Jesus' selflessness is astounding. He lays aside his needs and his desires in order to care for the lost sheep of Israel. He remembers what he is there for. It's a complete reversal of Herod, who is pictured only as selfish and destructive. Jesus gives of himself over and beyond what we can even fathom in order to restore these people 
in order to give them life. May we do likewise. Verse 15 tells us that the day was getting late and they're in a desolate place, which means that they're in the middle of nowhere, the wilderness. So the disciples are prudent and they come to Jesus and they say, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. It's a realistic request, if not slightly naive. If they're in a desolate place like a wilderness, any little hamlets or villages close by would not be able to provide for this size of a crowd. They would need to make the journey home. But Jesus says to them in response, they need not go away. You give them something to eat which is a command. It's emphatic even. You do it. Can you imagine the stunned faces of the disciples after hearing Jesus wants them to feed these thousands of people? Us? How are we supposed to do that, Jesus? They say, we only have five loaves and two fish. The Gospel of John records for us that this is a little boy's lunch. It's not even enough to feed the 13 of them, Jesus and his 12 disciples, let alone the thousands gathered here in the wilderness. But then Jesus takes over. He takes control. Bring them here to me, the loaves and the fishes. Verse 19 records what happens next. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said, a blessing. He orders the crowds to sit down on the grass. The word sit here is more formal. A more formal word than we would typically see translated as sit. It is a word that means something more like lay back, lounge about. It's used in the phrase reclined at table. It would be a feast word, taking a load off. Jesus is preparing a feast in the wilderness. Again, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Notice these four words that he took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. These are the same four words that Matthew will use describing Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. So this meal is a foreshadowing of that meal, which is a foreshadowing of the meal that we will enjoy altogether at the end of the age. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us that this occurred, this feeding of the 5,000, as it's commonly known, occurred around the Passover. Exactly one year later, Jesus would be instituting the Lord's Supper with his disciples and then going to the cross. Jesus breaks the bread, gives it to his disciples, who then take it to the crowds. When Jesus asked his disciples originally to give the crowd food, he wanted them to realize that without him, they could give the crowds nothing. A lesson that they would need for the future. Only through Jesus could the disciples do anything at all. They were Christ's ambassadors to the world. Even what we have received, we received from their hand 
handed to them by Jesus. And in the same way, we have nothing to give to the hungry world apart from the words of Christ. We only give what we receive from Him. The crowd comes to us hungry for salvation, whether they know it or not. And we cannot supply that salvation ourselves. Only Jesus satisfies. And that's exactly what Jesus record, or what Matthew records in verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So five barley loaves, which were like that big, and two meager fish feed 5,000 men. Now there's been some speculation that this was a, a natural miracle, which is obviously false. Some say, well, once they started handing stuff out, people realized that they should share so they pull out their meal and they start handing it around. Or, or this is a token meal. Everybody gets a crumb, which is unrealistic. We've got thousands and thousands of people here. No, this is a supernatural miracle in the vein of Elijah. Every gospel writer records this miracle. Early Christian art found in the Roman catacombs feature this miracle prominently. It resonated deeply with the earliest Christians. Why? Why this miracle? Bread was the most basic food in the ancient world. Now, we're, we're removed from this mindset. We have so many things to choose from. If I told you what's the most basic food, I would get 100 different answers in this room. Your favorite food, probably. But bread was the right answer in the ancient world. Bread was synonymous with the word food. Jesus is able to provide the most basic life-giving food in the most profound way. But that's not the only reason they loved this miracle. It's not the only reason why we should love this miracle. The most basic reason is what Jesus says after the miracle in the book of John. He says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.35. But again in John 6.50, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, in John 6, 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. These words were utterly confounding to Jesus' hearers, this audience, 5,000 men. And they were utterly confounding to the Roman rulers who accused early Christians of being cannibals. But they failed to understand what Jesus was actually saying. Just as bread gives life to the body as the most basic food, so Jesus brings eternal life and resurrection to the soul 
as its most basic need. If you would have eternal life, you need eternal food. If you want to abide in God, then Christ must abide in you. He is the bread of life, and whoever eats that bread, whoever has Christ abiding in them, will forever abide in God. Praise the Lord. Jesus' miracle in the wilderness is so wonderful because it pictures the cross in a profound way. Just as Jesus made sufficient the small meal of loaves and fish for the massive crowd, so his one sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for the sins for all who believe. Praise the Lord. The first title that John gives Jesus in the letter of 1 John is the life. If you want life and abundant life, you need the life, Jesus Christ. And if you have this life today, take a note from the disciples here. If you're sitting in here as a born-again believer, notice that Jesus breaks the bread and he gives it first to his disciples. This is profound. Jesus doesn't go about as a servant to the whole crowd. He gives the bread to his disciples. Jesus delegates men to do the work of distributing this symbol of life to the hungry crowd. He brings them in to do the work. Shouldn't we also be eager to enter into Christ's work? Doesn't he have something to hand to you to give to others? Something for you to distribute? This miracle is mind-boggling the more that you dwell on it. And I'll be honest, I could do that for a lot longer. There are so many things here that I really want you to notice. So instead of taking another 40 minutes, I'm going to give you homework. So many details. Notice the disciples pick up 12 baskets of leftovers. That's New Israel language. All of this takes place in the wilderness. That's Moses language. The crowds sit on the grass in an organized way. That's military language. The crowds are completely satisfied by the food that they receive, so it's not, again, a token meal. Matthew only mentions the men as he counts. Again, military language. I'm not going to dive into these details anymore. What I want you to do is go home and open Matthew chapter 14 and read verses 13 through 21 by yourself. If you are alone, take careful notes. Write down anything that sparks your interest. If you're married, read it with your spouse and discuss what you notice along the way. If you have a family, sit your kids down and read it together. Take 15 minutes and ask what they notice. What questions do they have? Find your dusty study Bible. Open the internet to find your tools and find out what they have to say. There is so much here. Fall in love with the compassionate King Jesus together and discover more. Dig deep. See what you find. Jesus is our compassionate King. Amen. He provides us with abundant life. We are fully satisfied in Him. Amen? He is able to do far more abundantly 
than what we ask or think. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, that is our confession this morning. You are able to do all things. Nothing is impossible in you. Lord, uh, you could have made the rocks on the ground in that wilderness into bread. You fed that crowd and it was no problem. And Lord, just like that crowd received life-giving sustenance from you in a miraculous way. We are utterly dependent upon you for our life now. We proclaim that. We confess that. We ask for even a greater measure of the Spirit, a greater sense of your presence so that we, we might live that life toward you to glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.